Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today is our fourth and final part of our series on postmodernism. Pastor Jacob Ballard explains four key guidelines for cross-cultural ministry, including, number one, always change the language but never change the message. Two, exchange meta-narrative for personal narrative or community narrative. Three, exchange certainty for humility, clues, hints, and mysteries. And four, exchange absolutist morality for personal accountability and community action. Now, uh, there has been some question as to why do we need a series on postmodernism? Why is this relevant? And I think we really saw that yesterday, didn't we? Uh, January 6, 2021, a group of protesters, uh, Trump supporters, who were convinced that he had been cheated out of the election, that there was fraud in the election, first protested and then breached the Capitol building in order to interrupt the Electoral College process to certify the next president of the United States. This group had a defined community narrative, their own truth, their own values, and very much fit into this postmodern way of approaching the world that we've been talking about. So I think this is an incredibly relevant topic. Our real question today, now, full disclosure, I had recorded this episode with Pastor Ballard before the events of last night, so he's not going to mention it here. But um, the, the real question we're addressing in this episode is not how to understand that sort of thing, but how to reach people within the postmodern mindset, whether you're talking to somebody who's an extremist on the left or an extremist on the right, or somebody who's just going with the flow somewhere in the middle, but has adopted a postmodern approach to truth or to morality or towards meta-narratives, not that they necessarily would use that term. Uh, And so really, I think today's episode is super relevant, much more relevant than I could have imagined when we recorded this, that really the question in many of our minds today as we woke up to the shock of this unprecedented modern history event is how do we, what do we do? How do we reach people? How do we talk to people who who are engaging in this kind of behavior? And so I think this episode will give us some real guidance on that, looking at how to reach people from a postmodern perspective. Here now is episode 373, Postmodernism Part 4, Cross-Cultural Conversations. Pastor Jake Ballard, so glad to have you back for Part 4 today of our conversation on postmodernism. Very glad to be back. We got into some spicy material last time, some important issues, and looking at how postmodernism drives the different aspects of narrative, experience, and community as they're expressed in different movements like the LGBTQ plus community, the Black Lives Matter community, or some other examples of how Community identity and shared narrative and experience really is the focus going forward. One of my main passions in life is the Great Commission. You know, how do we reach the world? Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. Well, I'm in the, in the nation of the United States of America. So are you, Jake. And 
So I'm, I'm asking mm-hmm. the question, how do I reach my own people? I'm not asking the question, how do I shore up my base of you know people yeah. that already agree with me and blow the other side out of the water in such a way that everyone on, who already agrees with me shouts, rah, rah, get them. That's not what I'm into. That's not what I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about how do I reach somebody who thinks that Christianity is dumb, that Christianity is bigoted, that the Bible is outdated, that religious people are intolerant or stupid. How do I reach those people? Because those are the people that aren't already saved, that aren't already in a relationship with God through Christ. Uh, So that's really what I'm interested in here. So talk to me about how do we translate the gospel into a language that the postmodern mind can readily understand. Sean, if you're trying to reach the people who have given up on faith, then you're in the right country. Because one of the things I wanted to talk about is we what we need to do is view ministry to people who are coming from a postmodern mindset as cross-cultural ministry. It's we have a culture, and maybe that is a, is a modern Christian culture, maybe it's even a more emergent or even postmodern Christian culture, a different ways to describe where we're coming from. But we need to be saying, how do I reach people who don't think and look and talk and act and believe like me? That should be the way where we're coming from. And a huge portion of that is reaching people in America. America is one of the fastest growing numbers of non-churched people in the world. And I think that's really interesting. That's it's, it's a growing number and we need to be reaching people here. It's great if we support people around the world, but the light that shines the farthest shines the brightest close to home. And so if we want to be reaching people around the world with missions and ministries, we need to be focusing on our neighbors next door as well. So I think that's great. And so we have to be saying, what is cross-cultural ministry? How does that work for postmodern people? And that means that we have to translate the gospel for postmodernism, just like if we were going to Malawi, Mozambique, Kenya. These are places that my grandfather has been, and he they translated the Bible and different works into their language so they could speak it in their mother tongue. And that's awesome. Spoken in, they did Swahili and Chichewa, these languages that are of the people there. They had to translate the gospel. We have to do the same thing when we translate the gospel for postmodernism. We have to always change the language. If there's anything that could hang people up on where where they're saying, I can't get past this. Uh, I can't hear you after you say this. We need to change the language so people can hear what we're saying rather than get focused on words that, that slow them down. An example would be man versus mankind versus humankind or humanity. This idea of using gender neutral or gender inclusive language is we may say oh that's silly that's not what the original text says but if a word like we're translating out of the greek the greek isn't the word man it's a word that meant humanity and we change if we change the language that includes people people can hear it and if people if we can say this is for everybody it's not just males that are being talked about here, but men and women. That's a great way that we can change the language, how we present the the message of the gospel. Another way we can do this is, as we talked about last time as well, truth. Truth is a great one where how do we, let's not get hung up on just trying to make people believe in a objective, definable, all-inclusive truth at the beginning. Instead, 
change language to be we're talking about truth and that made me say it's got a small t it's truth as jesus christ expressed it we can get to his expression of truth is the best and it's the most in line with the fundamental reality of the universe that is god but we got to get to that point so always be changing your language and saying how can we make it better for people to hear and that takes understanding people and understanding how you're who you're evangelizing to and who you're speaking to and what they're hearing when you say these words yeah. you go through a bunch of examples but we want to make sure that we're always reevaluating the language that we use to communicate the gospel. But Jake, what about people who say, well, that's compromising. I don't want to change what the gospel is because it's forever, it's written in scripture, it's been there for all these generations. How, how would you respond to that? That's because, Sean, we never change the message. What Christ said and what he did the gospel message of that he came to seek and save the lost, that he came to preach the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, that he came to live and to die and to rise again, to be our savior. Those things never change. And we have to be very clear that we do not change the message, even if we change language. And so how we express that, it takes some give and take. Sometimes language shouldn't change. In some cases, when, say, Paul is talking and he says to brothers, he may be speaking only to men. And so to change it to brothers and sisters would be wrong. Other times, it may be for everyone. And we have to say, that's a nuanced perspective. We don't change what Jesus did. We can't say that Jesus was one of many truths one of many ways. Jesus said, no person comes to the Father but through me. We can't change that message. We can't get around that. And that may be a stumbling block to people. Jesus said that he that his message would cause some people to stumble. If someone does not want to hear past that point, they say, no, all religions have to be equally true. We can't compromise that point. But we try to break down any artificial barriers. And those artificial barriers could be things like changing the language. Do we demand people believe a literal version of Genesis 1 or a literal version of Genesis 2 through 11? Do If we demand that of people, that may not let them get to Jesus, but we can say, let's get the message of Jesus and salvation. And then maybe that will change your perspective of how God chose to create. Changing the language saying, what are we allowing to be open and free for interpretation and what doesn't get changed? And some things are more open and free for interpretation and some things aren't. And Jesus is not a point at which there's open and free interpretation. Jake, let me ask you, did you listen or watch the debate with Ken Ham and Bill Nye? Yes, I did. What did you think of it? They were debating one. Uh, so Bill Nye was the atheist guy, classic scientism point of view. And Ken Ham was uh, your yeah. standard young earth creationist, famous for the uh, Answers in Genesis ministry and the Ark Museum and all this. How did that seem to you in, in, you know, in light of our conversation here? Bill Nye comes with a perspective that to deny science, in this case, the Big Bang and 
subsequent origins science has a negative effect on science in under as understood in a broader sense. He's very concerned that we won't have engineers and doctors and scientists taking care of vaccines and taking care of flight and taking care of our different programs for the future. He's very worried about that, and especially as it relates Bill Nye to uh, climate change. And so he had some points, but they he really talked past Ken Ham. Ken Ham was saying, I agree with all the sciences as they relate to our modern day, anything that's, he calls it observable science. But he, he has a distinction that is not accepted in the wider scientific community of historical sciences, things that are unmeasurable, like the beginning of the earth, like the beginning of humanity. So he says, this is historical science. We can't observe how, human, how humans came to be. So we have to take the best record of that that we have. We have someone who was an eyewitness, that is God, and he spoke his word, and so we have to take him literally. I think that what Ken Ham is trying to do is make sure that kids of faith, as they encounter Darwinian science in places like colleges and in the wider societal world, that they don't lose faith in what Scripture says about Jesus because of what it says in Genesis. Ken Ham says all of Scripture must be taken literally. He says if we, we don't take Genesis literally, we don't take Jesus literally. But in cross-cultural ministries, as we we're thinking about how we translate this postmoderns, postmodernists, if they're coming to the church, if people are postmodern, they've already accepted science. If we're saying you must change both your uh, worldview, and if, if that's something that we're saying, and we're also saying you must change how you view science before Jesus can love you and save you, we're really missing the point. We can talk about how important Genesis is, especially the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph in, in the book of Genesis. But if we say the earth has to be 6,000 years old in your theology before you can give your life to Christ, that's something I think is, is problematic. Uh, that's turning the language of the scripture into the message of scripture. You and know, I think that may be a problem. What I observed about it, I find so ironic in the light of our current series here on postmodernism is how similar Bill Nye and Ken Ham were. I mean, they were both utterly modernists that, oh, had, yeah, absolutely. you know, Bill Nye is a fundamentalist and so is Ken Ham. The, the fundamentals differ. One believes that science can answer all of our questions and the other believes that the Bible can answer all of our questions. And really, when it comes to technology and all the stuff that relates to doing actual science, they both agree. Oh, yeah. So really, absolutely. what struck me by—I I just re-listened to this debate the other day. Uh, well, it took me a, a couple of days. What, what struck me about it was how uh, just completely out of touch both of them are with any of this that we're talking about. Neither of them would appeal— to most postmodern thinkers today, because the, the, all no. of their categories are evidence-based and logic-based and cold, hard facts. Uh, neither of them talk about personal narrative or experience. D is that something that stuck out to you as well, or is that just me? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no, you're a hundred. You are a hundred percent on point with that. I was uh, relating it in some other ways, and I find this topic fascinating, which is why I may go off on a tangent. But I think you're absolutely right. They are both modernist, talking past each other because their fundamentals differ. But they are they are thoroughly modern, and that's why 
Ken Ham in the wider culture, when people know about him, he's laughed at. And that's not to be mean to him. And I, I, I think Ken Ham wants to do good. And I think his approach to science, it, it's interesting because it is very modern in that he, he discredits science because he thinks he has a better resource. But it's not because of a experience that he's had. He says, God is the best scientist. And so therefore, I'll trust his science first. And my science must be faulty. But it is still very modern. Like you said, like, we'll find the truth. There is one truth to be found. And we're both going to find it rather than coming with a with any sort of with any sort of this is what happens at a personal and corporate level communal level for people right he actually and this is another example of it i've been to the creation museum and kinham expresses everything in the terms of the meta narrative of christianity right he uh-huh. he says everything started as creation and then there is corruption and then he goes through redemption uh, consummation i think there's a christ fifth consummation one maybe yeah probably christ is the middle one redemption consummation and the whole idea is that he's saying the entire world is functioning because of this one story and it overrides every other communal story and that will not sit with people who are postmodernists and say there are multiple stories that people use to ex- examine the world and how do you prejudice this one over any others he says there's only one story what we should be doing as speaking to the postmodern culture saying we have a story we think it's the best story we know other people interpret it differently but we think this accords with the way that god views the world because of what we see in scripture. That, and Bill Nye's doing the exact same thing. Oh, absolutely. He is 100%. He's doing the exact same says, thing, but with a different meta narrative. Mm-hmm. And they're just, you know, like two Star Wars characters with their lightsabers. And each one is a meta narrative battling it out, saying, no, mine's better. No, mine's better. And the postmodernist is like, why are you guys fighting with each other? Why can't we all get along? Yeah. If they were speaking with two different, as two different communities, they could both be right in some ways, right? If they were both postmodernists, it would be, we say, I think yours is wrong. I think yours is right. But it's saying, well, this is how we're interpreting the data rather than you use false data. You use false understandings. God can't speak to this, that kind of thing. Ken Ham would say that you shouldn't interpret any other way than the way that I've explained it. That makes it really hard to be someone who is trying to take scripture seriously, but also take science seriously. And as a person who does that myself, I, I think it's hard to come to these discussions and I want to reach postmodern people who some of them have walked away from faith because the science is bad. And we say, you must believe X, Y, and Z. Can we, can we change the language around that? And can we have uh, a better view of, of what science is doing in our culture? And I think that's an important thing to do. And that also science isn't the end all be all, right? I mean, that's, that's a, that's a good thing. No, science changes all the time. They're always refining theories and overturning Mm -hmm. them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's huge overlap, too, Jake, I'm sure you know, between science and theists, uh, believers in God, and Christians in particular, over the years, uh, you know, like, basically, we, the Church, invented science Mm -hmm. because we thought that there was a God who had laws in in nature that were like his laws in the moral realm. And that intuition is what led to the discovery of so many of the different branches of science uh, during the scientific revolution. So, I mean, there's there's no reason for us to pit these two things as enemies in a deadlock with each other, right? Yeah. It, moving on to the subject of meta narrative and narrative, you had raised 
the issue before that meta narratives, and we just kind of illustrated it, meta narratives are perceived by postmodern people as sticks with which people can beat other people into their way of thinking. Now, I uh, I don't know if I would identify as a modernist, postmodernist, pre-modernist, what I am, mm-hmm. but I would say that I see the incredible value of a meta narrative, and I'm not at all interested in giving up my way of thinking and, and making sense of the world just to appease postmodern-minded people. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want to come across and say, well, look, this is how the, the whole thing works. And then, you know, now that triggers them and they're not going to hear anything I have to say. So how do I, as somebody with a fairly settled meta narrative in my back pocket, how do I come across the culture and speak to people in without them getting uh, triggered by that? Right. And that comes down to understanding how to speak about narrative and how to speak about meta-narrative. And meta-narrative sort of colonializes someone's mind. They say, you must believe that the world works in only these terms. And what we're saying is there is a narrative structure, a, a community structure that has existed for thousands of years. First, it was the Jewish people, and then it was people who followed a guy named Jesus of Nazareth. And they've been saying that there was a there's a man who lived, who taught amazing things, who performed amazing miracles, who died and came back to life. And that is the narrative in which these people found hope and meaning and purpose. And so we're not talking about this is the only way to view the world and every other way has no truth in it at all or has, has no value in it at all, which could be a way to understand meta narrative. But it's saying that our narrative comports to the best to the way that the world is. We believe that there is a God who loved us because this man said, if you've seen me, you've seen his father and his father is the one that the Jews called Yahweh. And so we see this man and, and we, we trust that his, the way he's, what he spoke was true and what he did changed the world in some fundamental ways. So I've taken my narrative and aligned it with Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus who calls himself the Christ. When, when I say I want to look like that guy and I want to be a part of the community that he made, that moves me to be a part of the church. And that moves me to understand the world in different ways. If the church says we hold to these books that are that we call scripture, the Bible, that's saying it's helping me understand the world through the narrative of my community. But it doesn't force me to say that there's only one way to view the world. It's saying there's a book of stories and poetry and lessons and letters that tell me the best way to interpret the world around me. What I've just done, what I've just said is exchanging a meta narrative that is a club to beat people with for a narrative that invites people to say at the, at the end of all that, I say, you can put your narrative with along with his, you can become a part of this community and see if it, doesn't speak to you as well. And I think it does. I think that that's what we're inviting people to is to make their purpose and their meaning and their story align with Jesus. And that is where we exchange meta narrative for narrative. Even though we have a view, we we do believe our view affects the whole world, that it's a cosmic salvation, that it is a God above all other gods. 
we're not presenting a meta narrative and we're not presenting it in a way to abuse people, to beat people, to say there's only one way to think. And so I, I don't even think it's a, a way of saying, oh, I have my meta narrative here, but I'm going to pretend like I don't have one. I think it's saying we right. talk about what a meta narrative it is and let go of that for the narrative of Jesus, mm-hmm. which I think is also the narrative of God. And if he's got a narrative, if he is a if he is a he, if he is a person who has a personal relationship with the world and with people in the world, then I want to follow his narrative. Yeah, Jesus sure did follow God's narrative, didn't he? Oh, absolutely. In his, in his own life. Um, and I was just thinking about the way the Bible exists. It, it has these four Gospels, right? And each one of those Gospels is a collection of narratives about the life and sayings of Jesus Christ. And mm-hmm. we mentioned this before, the Bible is palatable to different isms, to modernism, to postmodernism, to these other isms that are maybe coming down the pipeline in the future. It can speak to those different perspectives. Like, for example, the text in Psalm 34, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. There is this idea of inviting in. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's this invitation right on the page of Scripture. You know, Jesus says to his followers, his closest disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do they say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That question is just hanging out right there for us in Scripture. And, you know, the Bible does not present some sort of ironclad, overarching way to make sense of the world in some sort of explicit way. No, it invites you to discover that by putting together the the different parts of Scripture into a cohesive whole. And, uh, you know, so I I think almost like the Bible is our greatest asset in this quest to uh, share the good news with people from a postmodern mindset, wouldn't you say? I agree with that 100%. You know, we look at Scripture, like you said, the four Gospels, no one came along in the earliest days and tried to splice them all together to make them make sense without any, oh, this story could be happening here or here. There's timeline differences. There are different number of people. It's saying that these stories are true and they tell us about what Christ did in his story. But it's important to understand that they're not trying to say there's only one way to view Jesus. The earliest interpreter said that there's four ways. Matthew shows us something different than John does, and that's okay. And the same thing's true with 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings compared to the Chronicles. The Chronicle, they tell us the same stories, but they use slightly different words, and that's okay. It, it's, it's opening up the idea that narrative can be something that we can work through and with instead of having to focus only on one meta narrative that kind of crashes down on us and, and pins us underneath right. it. Let's talk about certainty, because this is another issue I like certainty. I think a lot of people do. I would say that, in a sense, postmodernism pushes certainty, uh, where it's like, I am absolutely convinced of this, and I'm going to now rant and, and rage and cancel you if you disagree and all the rest. How does certainty play into modernism and postmodernism and cross-cultural ministry? Well, with the idea that absolute truth, either it doesn't exist or it's impossible for us to find— then what we have is a point of, can we tell people this is the absolute truth about the universe? This is the, so when we're talking about certainty in the context here, 
what we're going to do, how to reach out to a postmodern culture is exchange the certainty of this is the absolute truth that I absolutely know that I can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. Let me show you all the logical proofs to prove that God exists. And I'll do this with both science and with, with theology and with logic. It's saying, let's push that aside for a moment and instead offer people clues, hints, and mysteries that there may be logical proofs for God, but say with those logical proofs, there've been people who have, every time someone's presented a logical proof, someone's come along and said, and here's why it may not work, or here's why it just absolutely doesn't work. So we, we offer people the saying, let's look at the world around us and say, are there clues for the existence of God? Does the understanding that, that, that something can be beautiful show us that there may be something like a person who observes beauty, even when humans aren't there to see it? The idea of hints that, that we experience things about the world that make us yearn for something beyond death and decay and instead of life and life everlasting. Mysteries of saying there are times, and this is one that goes both for people outside the church, but people inside the church, where there are times where more than just liking to be certain, I enjoy being right. I like to know that I have the right <laughs> answer. And for a long time, it was important to me when people asked me a question that I could give them, here is the absolute answer. And I've become, over time, I've had to learn to be okay with mystery. That thing, There are things that we don't know, that we maybe can't know, and that's okay. Why does God love us? There's not a good answer for the why in that question. We can say we know how he does by giving us his son. We know that he does because God is love. But why he would choose to love these people on a ball that do nothing but hurt one another and sin against him, I'm not going to be able to give you a definitive answer for why, except that God is love. And I'm okay with sitting in that mystery. And that is where we get to, when we're talking about a cross-cultural ministry here, this goes to our evangelism and telling our stories. We're not trying to give everyone all these hard case evidence. Like we were talking before about saying all this evidence that we have that is undeniable and irrefutable. We're saying, hey, look, here's what's happened in my life. And this pushes me to see something beyond the every day that we go through here. So, and, and that's something yeah. that doesn't mean that there aren't moments of certainty even in the outside world, in postmodern worlds, there are moments of certainty. Like you said, for example, I know that this is dicey and I may be the trigger warning here, but rape is wrong. Everyone agrees with that. No one thinks it's right. right. And so that's a certainty that we can stand on. But that doesn't mean that we know that we have to offer a certainty of what is the one true way to show love between a man and a woman. We're saying, we think that the mystery of a man and a woman, of people in love and sharing that, that's a, that's a mystery. How does Christ love the church? The man and a woman is an example of Christ and the church. How does he love the church in that way? Paul says that's a mystery. We don't, we don't know all the things, but we can know some things very certainly. And when we don't know something, say, I don't know it. And holding that out and saying, will you journey with me while we try to find the answer? That's what we're offering. I was just thinking about certainty and what what you were saying about sort of recognizing what we don't know yeah. and what we can't be sure about. And you made me think of the word humility. And I wonder if humility is a, a virtue whose time has come in the sense that it might be attractive to people 
to hear a pastor or hear a very devout Christian say, look, I don't have it all figured out. There's a lot I don't know. This is what I have experienced, and this is what I know is true. And, you know, it it might work for you, too. What, What do you think about that approach? I think you're onto something really strong there. With Ken Ham and Bill Nye, neither of them came with, I don't know the answer to that question. And that's a part of a debate. You don't want to come into a debate and say, I I don't know about that. But both of them were very self-assured. And I think that's a big reason why people are turned off. I mean, at at my church, people were were anti-listening to Bill Nye because of how arrogant he he comes across in some of his conversations. I was not aware of Ken Ham too much before the debate, and I felt the same way about him. I felt that he was coming off as rather arrogant in, in some ways. Well, they even asked him the question, I think each one, what would it take to show that you were wrong about this or something like that? And neither of them would even give an inch. It was just like, well, uh, that could never happen. Yeah, that's the problem, saying we should always be open to the idea that some of our thoughts are wrong. That some of our thoughts, and this is some coming from, again, coming from the guy who wants to be right, that so I could be wrong about a lot of things. I don't think I can be wrong about having ex- about the experience that I've had. I've had an experience of God that has changed me. And I don't think you have to apologize for that in a postmodern world either, though. You don't have to say, oh, we can prove by science that was just a mental brain state and there's really no such thing. In a world where people are spiritual but not religious, they can say you can say, I've experienced the supernatural, and it's only found in the people of God, the, the church, and through the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. I think that's a, a, an okay thing to say. And, and absolutely, humility, it's a virtue in the Christian church for all time, but it's something that I think is rising in ascendancy. And if we can come and say, journey with us while we try to find the answers that we may not know now. That's a invitation that I think many people will take us up on. And I, and I would encourage you and your fellow Christians to be holding that out for people as the invitation to faith. I tell you, one of the voices that I've really come to appreciate over the last 10 or so years as this change has really come onto my radar is uh, Tim Keller and uh, just his style. I've seen him speak at on YouTube, uh, a talk at University of California at Berkeley, one of the most hardcore leftist places on the planet, to this incredibly intelligent audience. His speaking topic was like a nightmare. It was like how Christianity is right and everyone else is wrong or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, man, this guy's going to get skewered. And then he talked uh, at, at authors at Google about marriage and the Christian view of marriage. And I'm like, man, this guy's going to get roasted. And, uh, you know, I, I've seen his style, and he's a New York City pastor for many years, now uh, stepped down from preaching. But And he navigates those situations because he has a humility to him. Oh, yeah. He, he has a, a way about him that says, look, this is what I understand, but Maybe this is wrong, or maybe there's some other way to look at it. And uh, what what he does, uh, what he's really a master of doing, is turning the tables on people, and they're saying to him, oh, you can't say that Christianity is right and everyone else is wrong. And, and and then he can say to them, well, all right, so what what, what are you doing here? What What is this? You're evangelizing me, aren't you? You're preaching a gospel of 
Christianity can't be right and everyone else is wrong, right? That's what you want me to, you want me to change to adopt your view of the world. That's what you're you're colonializing me right now. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's kind of humorous, but like his way of going about it is conversational and it's by asking questions and it's by pointing out in a sort of winsome way that we're all really doing the same thing here. It's just I think this way for these reasons, and you think that way for those reasons. And, he, and is he not really a postmodern guy, but he he's somehow able to operate in a postmodern context without getting everybody super angry and losing losing them completely. And uh, I've kind of appreciated him as a uh, role model for for this a little bit, engaging the culture. Have you have you encountered his stuff at all, or you know what I'm talking about here? Yeah, the idea of clues, hints, and mysteries came from his book, The Reason for God. Ah. And so if you, one of the things that he does is he talks about the hint of beauty or the clue of beauty. I'm I'm not sure about his language, but I am riffing off of that idea, the idea that we're offering something more than just, because he talks in that about the logical reasons why God should exist. But then he goes on and says, and there's something more than that. The feeling of that there is justice that should happen in the world, that's something that we can't say is a definitive reason for God, but it's a, I'm not sure if he uses this term or if it's a term that I imposed upon the reading later, but it's the preponderance of evidence. It's not that he starts with, oh, here are the logical proofs, and this is all the reasons, and they're perfect. It's a, And you're an idiot if yeah, you disagree. It's, not, it's definitely not that. It's <laughs> exactly, it's saying, look, there's this clue and there's this clue and there's this clue and there's this hint and there's this flavor to the language and flavor to the day. Doesn't that overall make us experience something that we would call the God of scripture? And I think he's onto something. So from when I read it and this, it's been a while now, it's embedded itself into my language in this place. I think you're right on the money there. It's humility that he comes across with in that work. And then I, I would say if he's that way in all of his speaking and engagements, it's a it's definitely a virtue that will win over people more than certainty did in the age of the age of science and modernism. Right. And the thing about him too that's so cool is that he is certain. Yeah. You know, it's not like he's going around like, I don't know anything. I'm just I'm just a passenger on the plane and who even knows if it is a plane? Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. That's not Tim Keller. Like he's he's incredibly grounded. But he has a conversational tone that really works to invite people in. And he doesn't beat you over the head. He's like, all right, so you want to create your own identity. Do you realize, and it's by asking questions, really. Do you realize the incredible amount of pressure that puts on you to create your own sense of purpose and meaning? And do you realize how fragile that will make you? That if anyone doesn't affirm your created meaning, that that could just devastate you. And you're like, oh, geez, that, yeah, man, I don't want to be one of those snowflakes or whatever. You know, I want to be able to be strong and powerful. And, you know, he's like, well, let me, let me share with you my identity. I believe that I am worse than I ever imagined and more loved than I ever thought possible. That's like a classic Kellerism, you know, where we're so sinful, but yet God loves us so much, Romans 5, 8, 9, so on. Uh, You know, I just just love that style. Uh, But, you know, as Christians, we do have these commitments. You're not saying that we need to give up and just be like the world. You're saying that we need to become adept at cross-cultural ministry, that we're not changing to be that way, but we are finding ways to express what we already believe, what we're already convinced of, in a way that makes sense. So let's talk about the real difficult, thorny subject of morality. 
I mean, we are stuck with the morals that the Bible gives us, and uh, our society is obsessed with morality, over and over makes moral arguments against Christianity, saying that we're not loving because we don't accept this or do that and so on. How do we even engage on that? Right. The the way we're, we're kind of talking about this is exchanging one thing for another, this idea of absolutist morality. But that's a problematic thing because if we say there is one moral structure to the universe and we have to find it, if people say, we're, if we're all operating on there's one moral structure, what happens is people say, oh, you're not loving because you're not accepting of these things. When in reality, we're saying we don't operate on an absolutist morality. We're saying that we have attached our narrative to the narrative of Jesus Christ, to the narrative of the God that Jesus Christ served and to the church community that has been existing for the, these last 2,000 years. So we don't bring a morality that we say is absolutist for everyone of all time. We say somehow that everyone could find it if they just looked hard enough into the universe. We say God explains some things that you wouldn't get if you looked into the world. For example, we shouldn't allow for gay marriage because it goes against nature. And when people will respond to that with, oh, but in nature, this, that, and the other mammalian species have homosexual relations. So it's not nature. That's all coming from a, there's an absolutist morality that's everywhere in the world. But we're not coming from that. We're saying, look at scripture. And in scripture, it says that homosexual offenders will not inherit the kingdom of God. This was said in 1 Corinthians, it happens in other places, in the, New, in the New Testament, not even looking at the Old, in the writings of Paul in the New Testament, who we take as the words of Scripture, the words that God intended us for to read, that determines what we as a community says is correct and right. So when we we're giving up a, everybody can find it, we say, we we hold on to this. That's going to be a sticking point, because when I say, when we say absolutist, when it comes to what scripture says about our beliefs, yes, we have to be an we have to be absolutist, but so is everyone else about their own beliefs. We just have a different set and standard. And that's what we should actually be talking about is saying, why do you hold to what you hold to be true? That's which is what getting back to what Tim Keller does. Why do you hold that this, that, and the other is good and right? Why is loving this person better than not loving them? What, where, where are you basing your morality on? What are you basing your ethics on? And what we're doing is we're saying we claim scripture. So some Christians have said that I wish that we could look to gay marriage and say it's absolutely acceptable in the, in the light of scripture, but it doesn't look to be that way. For whatever reason, that's not what scripture says. And maybe there are reasons that we can look into and find more about, but on the face of it, there's an understanding that God says that is unacceptable, that, that murder is, is wrong, murder of innocence is wrong, and that's unacceptable, that hatred of anyone is, is wrong. So at the same time that we're saying we believe that marriage should be between one man and one woman, if anyone hates someone because of sexual orientation, attraction, or even how they're trying to express themselves in gender, and we can talk more about that at another time, if there's hatred there, that's not coming from a place of Christ. What we do is we say there is communal moral standards that are given to us by scripture that the church is supposed to uphold and the community holds each person accountable. 
So it's not trying to determine morality from either biology or from some absolutist understanding, but it's something that is that the community holds that each person that is a part of the community is bound to and the community helps them find follow through with it whatever actions they are called to have. Yeah, you, you know, asking the question, what's your take on morality? You know, if they say, oh, well, you shouldn't believe this about sexual ethics or whatever, you say, well, what's your take on it? You know, and they say, oh, I think everyone should be allowed to do whatever they want. Be like, are you sure? Are you sure that that's absolutely the, the right way to look at it? And, you know, that might be, that question might take them aback, but I think probably most people say, yeah, I am sure. I am certain this is the absolute right way to look at it, that everyone should decide for themselves what is moral and not, so long as it doesn't hurt people. Something like that is yeah. pretty, pretty typical. And just by asking that question, you've, you've kind of made the point and made the person think like, wow, I am a dogmatic absolutist myself. You know what? We all are. We're all a bunch of <laughs> absolutist moralists who really yeah. think we know what's right and what's wrong and we really do want to impose that on other people. And, you know, almost just like getting somebody to that point to realize, look, they're doing the same thing. The question is not, uh, is there a right way to do sex? In this case, the, the example we're, we're talking about. The question is, how do we know which standard is trustworthy or will work for you? You know, forget universalizing everything because you've already said that that's just a no-go for the postmodern mindset. But, you know, what what do you think would be best for you? Would it be for you to get your view from, you know, Hollywood and, and what they think is popular and convincing or to get it from some other source that is even outside of our culture and even outside of our time? You know, an anchored source that isn't going to change in a hundred years. And, I, and another another point along these same lines is that that might might be helpful to point out to people, especially young people, where they're all hip and with it and on the uh, the edge of social justice issues, is, is to say, look, do you think your grandchildren or your great grandchildren are going to look back at you and say, oh, they weren't totally out of touch? No, of course they are. They're going to look at you just the way you look at your great grandparents and people from, you know, the early 1900s. And you're like, oh, man, they they were so clueless and, you know, they use so much sexist language or, or whatever the, the criticism would be. That same criticism is going to come your way in 100 years, too, because oh, yeah, absolutely. the culture is going to shift again and then it's going to swing back a different direction or a new way that nobody's even imagined to be on the horizon yet. And you're going to be out of touch. So, so, you know, basically like kind of destabilizing the, the confidence in the system that, oh no, everybody knows that this is the right way to look at this issue uh, might, might make a little bit of room there to have the discussion without everyone ending in a shouting match or something. Yeah. And Sean, I want to go back to one thing you said that I think is an important thing, and I, I think it helps us deal with the political ramifications of these different ideas. Everybody's holding to different standards of morality. When we, we talk about, yes, we all are absolutist, 
Um, but one thing, you, one thing you said was we're all foisting our standards onto other people. Um, and I think the Christian perspective on that could be more nuanced. One thing that I, I look at is 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13. And they, these say, uh, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And what Paul's saying there is he's, he's just been talking about all these things about the standard that you should hold. And he says the standard of the people who are not part of the church, who are part of the world, we can't expect them to act differently. So we're not asking for people to hold our own morals. And so in some cases, we're not saying that we should make political statements about what marriage should be and say this is the standard that the government should hold. We're just saying in the church, there are standards that we have. In the church, there are standards about what, about what to do. Now this, we can talk about the culture can make standards about what is harm and how harm should be handled and on a political level. But as the church, we may say, hey, look, to be a part of the church, you have to have a certain moral standard. And we're not saying everyone in the world has to have our standard, but that is what we hold on to. Uh, I think that's a, a really interesting point that we're not, I'm not saying someone who is a non-Christian has to agree with me on all these things, but to be a Christian, you have to start agreeing with what the Bible and Christ and the church have said about things like gay marriage and abortion and, and these uh, other hot topic issues that are coming yeah. out today. I, th- I appreciate you saying that, and I, I really, uh, I totally agree. What we see God doing throughout Scripture is not forcing everyone to be in relationship with Him. We do not see that. We see yeah. right from the start that He embedded choice in the system, and yeah. knowing the full consequences of what it would be like if they disobeyed, God gave our first parents, he risked it enough to give them the choice to disobey. And he let them disobey. Mm-hmm. Letting somebody you love disobey when you know it's going to harm them and harm your relationship with them, that takes a lot of courage. And that seems to be how God has set up the whole system. You know, with ancient Israel, yeah, there were all these laws and commandments put in place, but anybody could just leave. Yeah. There was no there was no law against migrating to live among the Moabites or the Ammonites or the Philistines. There was no law against any of that. But if you're going to be in the land, in the covenant land with the people of God who had agreed to live by this this standard, then you had to live by that standard. But anybody's free to leave. It's the same thing right. with Christianity. It's all based on persuasion. It's not based on Oh well, you have to do this. No, we we think that we genuinely believe if the whole world adopted the ethics of Christ, the whole world would be a wonderful place, and it would be much Absolutely. better. Absolutely, we we do believe that. Yeah, but we also believe that God honors free will enough to allow anyone to rebel and to stand against if they want to, and I think that's a legacy that we should be proud of. Part of reaching out to a postmodern world is not saying this is the only way to live or the only good way to live, right? There may be people who are genuinely happy and successful at life with that are secular or Buddhist or Muslim, right? We could say that's totally possible. But what Jesus Christ offers, if you listen to him, follow him, and experience his grace and his life, it's the best way to live. What our evangelism should be offering is not, this is the only way to live in a world of, and there are no other good choices. It's, 
there are tons of choices that you could make. The best way to live is by following Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And that is what we're holding out to people. That's what we're saying. We want you to experience this rather than to experience the heartache and the pain that can come from choosing against it. Yeah, and I think also allowing for a little bit of eschatological tension there as well, that your experience in this current age might actually not be the most enjoyable if you choose to follow Christ, right? Uh, Right. I mean, Stephen didn't live long, and uh, he didn't become wealthy and all the rest. You know, he was stoned to death in the book of Acts, uh, but, uh, you know, I would say that he lived a good life and that his life has had a legacy and that in the end he will very happily say that it was all worth it in the resurrection. And so will everyone else who has suffered because of the name of Christ. But we're about out of time here today, Jake. Uh, This has been such an epic saga of all these different episodes, but uh, just by way of conclusion, uh, is there anything you'd like to share or encourage people in as far as this whole topic goes? Yeah, I have three takeaways, and I'll be very brief. Thank you for letting me go off on my own tangents, and this has been great discussion. I truly hope that people have benefited from this and that as they go out and reach into the world, that they can love on people who are different from them. Three takeaways. Always be learning about the world. The world continues to change. Learn about culture. Learn about the next generation. Learn about what comes after postmodernism, and and keep keep on learning. Always be translating the gospel. What we talked about early on about making sure that people hear you well, understand where they're coming from, and translate it into their language, whether that's a different human language or a different language that they can understand the true message of Jesus Christ. And and finally, and, and most importantly, always be loving everyone everywhere. Love is the key element, and a postmodern person uh, can can tell when you're coming with arrogance and pride and hatred of those different, and they can also tell when you're coming with love and care and that you want to actually get to know them and to present them uh, the best way of living, the way of living that is going to end in the most amount of joy for you and everyone around you uh, in this life or the next. So those are my three takeaways. uh, And thank you so much, Sean, for letting me uh, get on here. And and like I said, to have this wonderful conversation, I hope it's beneficial. I'd love to continue it. If people are wanting to uh, continue to to talk to me and to hear more about what I have to say, uh, I'd, I'd love to continue and Keep this as, a, as an ongoing dialogue. Okay. Thank you for your time. One last thing is, did you have a book recommendation that you think would really help people get a handle on the culture and stuff? I know you've read a whole bunch of books. You've taught a class at the Atlanta Bible College. Uh, wh- what would you recommend for most people as far as something that really would uh, help here? The first one I would point out, point people to is, They Like Jesus But Not the Church by Dan Kimball. It's uh, about how people look at Christian culture right now and say, why is Jesus so great and those people aren't? It'll probably push your buttons, but I think it's really good. I think it it says people are interested in hearing what Jesus had to say. um, And they're also wondering, like Gandhi, why are Christians so unlike your Christ? And maybe we can, maybe you, the the listener, can change their attitude and perspective and and you can kind of come prepared to listen to without giving up any of your convictions, which is something I think Dan Kimball does a great job of. He doesn't give up any of his convictions, but he opens up the opportunity for, for conversation with people who like Jesus, but not the church. And the other one is Who's Afraid of Postmodernism by James K.A. Smith. And 
This one is a great one because it introduces you to, if you're wanting to know more about postmodernism itself and how to put it into the church, it's a great resource. It's one that I've used at a collegiate level course. I think it really, but it's reads at a just understandable in an understandable way it introduces you to the quote fathers of postmodernism end quote and i think it'd be a great resource for anyone who wants to do a bit more of a deeper dive into the underpinnings of what all this postmodernism stuff is about okay sounds good well thanks so much thank you so much for having me well that's it for this episode and this series. I would love to hear your thoughts, and so would Pastor Ballard. Come on down to restitudio.org, find episode 373. This is part four of our series on postmodernism. And leave your question or comment. I just wanted to read out a couple of those ever so briefly. One is from John Brown, who wrote on our last episode, part three. I love this series with Jacob Ballard. I think it's so important for us to deal with society in its reality and not fail to engage well by focusing on what we wish the culture were like. I am grateful for this thoughtful content and am encouraged again to seek understanding and love in my interactions with strangers. I do want to say that this third episode really made it clear why this topic is important today, while the first two left the listener perhaps wondering. Obviously, there are many considerations that go into when to cover a part of a topic, but you might consider putting the purpose-driven episodes first in a series like this. I listen to every episode, but it could be beneficial for listeners who don't understand the weight of a series off the bat. Uh, Thanks, John, for that advice. Uh, Certainly pass that along to Pastor Ballard as he continues to develop this content and share it with others. Also, Steve Dibel wrote in on the Facebook group, and uh, although I don't usually read these out, I did want to mention this one because it is, it is interesting how he, as a, as a pastor, as a full-time pastor, has uh, sort of intuited the very content in this episode without having listened to it himself. He says, It's interesting as an observer of current trends in church. I live just down the road from Hillsong, the original church before it became a worldwide movement, and their church services are more emotional in the sense they produce outstanding music that moves the heart. That's in uh, Sydney, Australia, if you didn't know. He continues, As a result, I think they've connected much better with those with a postmodern worldview compared to the more cerebral churches. I think the other thing Christians with a more modern worldview need to realize is that you can win the argument and lose the person in the process. I think in our world today, evangelism needs to be, and this is the part that really ties into our episode today, although he did not listen to this episode before making this comment. He says, evangelism needs to be less abrasive slash debating people and more relational, where we are able to dialogue the good news, weaving it into our testimony, that's a personal narrative, and journey, asking questions. So thanks, Steve, for echoing a lot of the main points we just made in this episode and for your experience as a minister who has been engaging with people in the Sydney area. It's amazing that on the other side of the world, the issues are so similar that they are for us here in the United States as well. Well, that's about all we have time for today. Please do pray for peace in the United States as we are licking our wounds from the events of yesterday. I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.